and worship team for leading us this morning in these times of worship. Good morning, folks. I'd like to welcome you here this morning and thank you for participating with us each Sunday morning. We gather on these Sunday mornings and we believe that these are divine appointments. No one's here by accident. And so we want you to know that we value your presence with us. Thank you for coming. I do want to mention that as you head out of the service this morning and into a new afternoon that if you would remember Tyler and the senior high group as they travel back from Muskoka Woods this afternoon, they've been there at the, we're part of a, an association of churches called the AGC or Associated Gospel Churches of Canada and they've had a senior high retreat at Muskoka Woods this weekend and we've got young people there along with some leaders and so pray that God's word has been preached effectively and will find residence and root in their lives and that they would have a safe trip home. I also want to reinforce what Jeff has mentioned earlier. I want to encourage those who've never considered baptism. This is an important step in the Christian life that once you've trusted Jesus Christ alone as your personal Savior, that you would follow him in obedience as he's asked us to do and to make that public declaration. In order to prepare for that, we're offering two classes, one next Sunday morning and then the following week in preparation for a baptism service on Easter Sunday morning. And so please consider that if you've never been baptized, it's an important step. You've probably heard it said before, give a man a fish and you'll feed him for a day. Teach him how to fish, and you'll feed him for a lifetime. Makes sense, right? Well, here in John chapter 6, Jesus met a physical need of an entire multitude by feeding them from just five loaves of barley and two fish. It was probably somewhere between 20 and 25,000 people gathered that day. They ate as much as they wanted, according to John chapter 6, verse 11. And just to put an exclamation mark on this miracle, Jesus instructed his disciples to gather the uneaten fragments. And they ended up with 12 baskets of leftovers. Wow. What an unbelievable display of supernatural power. Jesus gave the multitude bread and fish. He met their physical needs for a day. And now he wants to meet their spiritual need. And not just for today or tomorrow, but for a lifetime and beyond, for all eternity. This morning, we're continuing our study of the Apostle John's account of the life and ministry of Jesus. Today, we want to focus on verses 26 through to the end of verse 40. The message is clear enough. Eternal life is accessible through the bread of life. And as we make our way through these verses, we find Jesus 
coaching the crowd. The same crowd that had crossed the Sea of Galilee back to Capernaum looking for another free lunch. But Jesus is more interested in their greater spiritual need this time. After all, eternity is hanging in the balance. It's either eternal life or eternal death. The same holds true for you and me. And so we may want to listen up as Jesus attempts to redirect this misguided crowd who are consumed with all things temporal. Jesus, from the coach's corner, or from behind the bench, or across the court, or from the dugout, depending on your sport of preference, offers four directives that help us discover eternal life that is accessible through this bread of life. If you're able, I'd invite you to stand with me for the reading from God's Word this morning. We want to read beginning at John chapter 6, verse 22, and I'll read through to the end of verse 40. John chapter 6, verse 22. The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there were no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they had ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father, God, has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered them, answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign? so that we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. 
He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me I, will, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. The reading of God's word. You may be seated. Father, your word informs us that fearing you is the beginning of wisdom. And wisdom invites us to listen. Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at my doorposts. For he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me injures himself. All those who hate me love death. Father, help us to learn from the missteps of this crowd. May Jesus' words resonate within our hearts, teaching us, reproving us, correcting us, and training us in righteousness so that we might be adequate, individually and collectively, equipped for every good work. May they keep us from self-destructive behavior. Rather, may we find life, eternal life, the life that you intend and that pleases you, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Discovering eternal life through a bread of life metaphor. John chapter 6, verses 22 to 59, is often referred to as the bread of life discourse. Although some would suggest it's hardly a discourse, it's more like a dialogue because of all the interruptions. But as I studied this passage this past week, I found myself viewing those interruptions of the crowd more like promptings of a Sunday school teacher who sits on the front pew, reminding the students who are performing the Christmas drama of their forgotten lines. Not that Jesus has ever forgotten what he was going to say, but it seems to me that he's playing off the crowd allowing their questions and concerns to direct the message or move the message along. When I looked, took that approach, I, I soon discovered that Jesus is preparing the crowd to respond to this bread-of-life metaphor by offering four directives, like that coach in the coach's corner shouting his instructions. Four directions that move them to a, a greater vantage point 
to a lookout where they can see and maybe gain a greater appreciation and then respond appropriately to this bread of life metaphor. And if not them, maybe you and me. Directive number one, shift from a preoccupation with the temporal to a consideration of the eternal. Look at verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Father, God, has set his seal. We touch briefly on this last week when we considered that tale of two roads leading from the feeding of the multitude. The road traveled by his disciples and the other traveled by the crowd. Two very different paths, but both landed back in Capernaum where they were set up for another encounter with Jesus. Notice that phrase at the end of verse 27. For on him, the Father, God, has set his seal. That just means that Jesus was authorized by the Father, like authorized dealerships. It means that you have met the standards and have the blessing of the manufacturer of the product that you are selling. Or as an authorized biography, it means that the person being written about has reviewed the manuscript, and he's accepted the author's depiction of his or her life. God the Father has signed off on Jesus' life and ministry. At his baptism, it was made crystal clear. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And again, on the mountain, when Jesus was transfigured, we're told that a bright cloud overshadowed them, Jesus, Peter, James, and John. And behold, a voice out of the, cl- cl- out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. These are just the direct verbal endorsements of the Father. Jesus was authenticated in all other kinds, a whole lot of other kinds of ways, fulfilled prophecy and miracles, to mention a few. God the Father has set his seal on this one. And that really speaks to John's purpose for writing this gospel account. These have been written so that you may believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John wrote so that we would believe that Jesus was the authorized one. The food that Jesus speaks of here was referring both to temporal and spiritual realities. And both are necessary. But temporal realities have a shelf life. They have an expiry date. They last for a little while and then they disappear or are thrown away, forgotten, 
Think of all the things that preoccupy you and I on a regular basis. Things about our appearance. Weight. The clothes we wear. Our teeth. Our hair or lack thereof. The kind of car we drive or vocation or our bank balances, all those externals are temporal things, and they pass away. Then there are those things that promise to satisfy our insatiable desires for more and more, things to consume and collect. Then there are plans and hopes and dreams, and how about those worries, those things that threaten to keep us awake at night? Things that we have no way of controlling, but they control our thoughts and sleep patterns. Temporal things. Jesus, in telling a parable of the seeds, said, The seeds that fell among the thorns represent those who hear the message, but all too quickly. The message is crowded out by the cares and riches and pleasures of this life. There you go. That's a good summary of temporal things. Things that limit the impact of God's Word in our life. The cares and riches and the pleasures of life. So as we pursue, whatever it is we are pursuing, it may be good to ask ourselves, so what will this matter in five years from now? In 25 years? In 50 years, when a lot of us will be dead and gone. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18 reminds us, For the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. Unfortunately, it is often the things that are out of sight, out of mind. Right? Brothers and sisters, that ought not to be the case. Temporal things cannot, must not, be allowed to become our sole preoccupation. Temporal things are necessary. They sustain our physical life. But eternal things, The food Jesus provides, they sustain us spiritually. And so unless we move from a preoccupation with temporal things and leave room for at least a consideration of the eternal, we will miss the meaning, the significance, and the invitation of this bread of life metaphor. We'll miss it. Discovering eternal life through a bread of life metaphor requires a consideration of eternal things. Directive number two, shift from what shall we do to what he has done. Look at verse 28. Therefore they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. 
The New International Translation of verse 26 puts it this way. What must we do to do the works God requires? Just tell us and, and we'll do it. They had all kinds of belief in their ability, I guess. These folks remind me of that rich young ruler who approaches Jesus in Luke chapter 18, asking, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In the end, as Jesus moves him from a strict religious conformity based on the externals to a matter of the heart, this rich young ruler, we are told, went away sad because he had great wealth. You can't fix this. And neither can I. All other world religions are following this crowd. Without exception, they are telling us what we need to do to appease God and earn our way to a better afterlife. Without exception, every world religion apart from Christianity, is performance-based. Ask them, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? And they'll tell you, they're all man's attempts to earn his way to heaven or to some kind of utopia or better afterlife, better life beyond this life. Christianity's message is believe in him whom he has sent. And let me simplify it even further for you. All the alternatives to Christianity are spelled D-O. Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E. You see, you and I are born sinners, incapable of living a life that pleases God. In fact, left to ourselves, we will have no desire to live for or be accountable to God. Romans 3.23 says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the standard of perfection that God requires for relationship with Him. The psalmist's admission in Psalm 51, verse 5, tells us that we inherit our sinful condition and it is put in place at the time of conception. We are all born sinners. Theologically, it's called the total depravity of man. And it does not mean that we are as bad as that we can possibly be. But what it does mean is that the sin, the sin nature, has permeated and infected or contaminated or polluted every part of us, our whole being. And that's bad news. Are you ready for some good news? Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in this, that while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. He did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He dressed himself in human flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ, visited the planet, walked among us, lived a perfect life, and died an absolutely horrible death for sins once for all. The righteous or the just for the unrighteous or for the unjust. So that his righteousness then becomes our righteousness and our sins are the sins that he bore at Calvary when they nailed him to a cross and he took his last breath. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 puts it this way. He made him, God the Father made God the Son, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And all we have to do is believe it. Unless we move from that, what must we do to believing in the one who has done for us what we could never do for ourselves, we will miss the meaning and the invitation of the bread of life metaphor. Discovering eternal life through a bread of life metaphor requires that we believe in the work of God, not what we can do. Directive number three, shift from a man-focused orientation to a God-focused orientation. Look at verses 30 to the, the end of verse 33. So they said to him, what then do you do for a sign? Can you believe that they said that? After being part of that miracle of all miracles, and now they're asking for a sign, so that we may see and believe you, what work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who has given you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. So they ask for another sign. This reminds me of that rich man and Lazarus story reported in Luke chapter 16. Might want to flip there. So the rich man is, and the Lazarus, Lazarus is actually a poor man that eats the crumbs, survives on the crumbs that falls off the table of the rich man. And it comes time and both eventually die. And when the rich man dies, he sees Lazarus. He's in a place of torment. And Lazarus is now in the lap of Abraham, the father of Israel, being comforted by him. And the rich man obviously is thinking, this is not a good deal. 
I'm in torment. He's in a place of comfort. I need to get a message back to my five brothers so that they don't make the same mistake I've made. And so he appeals to Abraham. Send someone back to inform my brothers. And Abraham says, listen, they've got Moses and the prophets. They can listen to it. In other words, they've got the Torah and the Old Testament scriptures. They can listen to those and learn not to make the same mistake. And the conversation goes back and forth. But notice how it ends in verse 30. But he said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. And indeed, they did not. Don't ever underestimate the power of unbelief. Apart from an all-powerful God's intervention, we will remain in our state of unbelief. More signs are never the answer. You and I will never be able to persuade or present enough evidence persuade our loved ones answer their questions as best you can but know that your best offense is to plead with God in their behalf accompanied by a, a living example and I don't mean living perfectly I just mean living authentically an authentic Christian life before them have you noticed how death can kind of sanitize our memories? Eulogies at funerals are often a kind of a gracious mixture of both fact and fiction. And then with the passing of even more time, the, the deceased can grow even more saintly. Take, take Moses, for example. By the time Jesus arrives on the scene, Moses has become a national hero of Judaism. And such was not always the case. Do you recall how Moses ended up on the backside of the desert for 40 years? Apparently, the oppressed Israelites didn't appreciate his savior complex. How about his reluctance to return to Egypt when God spoke to him from that burning bush. You see, Moses knew these people would not be all that responsive to his leadership. At one point, as God walks them through the deliverance process, they actually turn on Moses and Aaron, accusing them of making their life even more difficult and to go away. They've had it with them. And then once freed from Egypt, by crossing through the Red Sea on dry ground, how many times did they grumble and complain against Moses in the wilderness? Numbers chapter 16 tells an interesting story of mutiny in the wilderness, where the Lord actually has to supernatural supernaturally intervene in order to, to put down an uprising 
against Moses and Aaron's leadership. Then finally, as they stand on the threshold of the promised land, Moses expresses some of his feelings about these Israelites. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 37, The Lord was angry with me also on your account, saying, Not even you shall enter there. Moses was refused entry into the promised land. And again, in chapter 4, verse 21, just in case you missed it, Now the Lord was angry with me on your account, thank you very much, and swore that I would not cross the Jordan and that I would not enter the good land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Listen, Moses and Israel had their struggles. Their relationship was not always panacea. But now this first century crowd was holding him up as their great provider who had fed their ancestors with bread from heaven while they wandered in the wilderness for 40-some years. Match that, Jesus, and then we'll think about listening to you. Verse 32 contains another, Truly, truly, I say to you, listen up. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. If you've heard nothing else, hear this. Jesus doesn't throw Moses under the bus, but attempts to renew their minds by offering three corrections. And each correction would become increasingly difficult for these Israelites to hear. First of all, Moses didn't provide the bread. God did. Moses was a mere mediator. I can almost see the crowd conceding, of course. Ultimately, the manna came from God. We get that. But let's just say that in a culture where there's all kinds of hero worship and celebrities, you and I may want to be careful with whom we assign a credit. It's easy to get swept up in in the enthusiasm of a crowd. Second, there is a difference between the bread out of heaven, manna, and the true bread out of heaven. D.A. Carson points out that the Greek word didosin, translated gives, is in the present tense and is suggesting that God is presently providing this true bread from heaven a vague allusion to the one standing right in front of them, Jesus. The third correction, and probably the most difficult for these Jews to get their heads around, is that the true bread of God is not limited to Israel alone. Look at what it says. Gives life to the world. This would continue to be a difficult concept for the descendants of those who had eaten manna in the wilderness to accept. In fact, it became a major issue that plagued the early days of the New Testament church. It became the reason for the first ever church council 
reported in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Church Council. Jewish believers were insisting that Gentiles needed to become Jews in the process of becoming genuine Christians. Respond to the gospel by repenting and believing, be circumcised, and then become a true Christian. In other words, adopt the Jewish way and you will be a true Christian. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatians in chapter 5, verse 2, these words, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. In other words, you submit to the demands of Judaism and you will nullify the work of Jesus in your life. His sacrifice becomes meaningless. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period. And God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Discover eternal life through a bread-of-life metaphor, requires a God-centered worldview. Directive number four, move from perceived realities to a Jesus-defined reality. Look at verses 34 to 40. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. By the way, in this entire passage, there are only two commands. The first one is found in verse 27. Do not work for food. That was Jesus' words. The second one is found here. They're actually commanding Jesus to give them this bread. It's not please or could you or might you or will you. Just do it. They're commanding him. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you, you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, and do not, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. But does that response sound vaguely familiar? Look back at John chapter 4, verse 15. Here we have the Samaritan woman. Remember that despised Samaritan woman? And Jesus, making his way back to Galilee, stops by a well, and this woman comes out to meet him together. Actually, she comes to draw water and has this conversation with him. Look at verse 14. But whoever drinks of this water, Let's start in verse 13. 
Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. Verse 14, But whoever drinks of, this, of the water that I give him shall never thirst. But the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. She didn't get what Jesus was talking about either. She was just thinking of, oh, I, I don't have to come to the well and draw water anymore. And same with this crowd. They were looking for food. She's thinking about all those trips to the well that could be avoided. The crowd here in chapter 6 were looking for free lunches and full bellies. And Jesus laid out a claim, lays it out, out reality with a claim, a confrontation, a commitment, and a clarification. Jesus straight up claims to be the bread of life. Just wham, here's a dose of spiritual reality. And more than that, if you come to him, your hunger and thirst will be satisfied. Forever. Will not hunger, will never thirst. Now remember, this is metaphoric language. Jesus is using the concrete, the physical, to explain or to communicate spiritual realities. You come to me, and I will provide nourishment for your, that will maintain your spiritual well-being. We just read from John chapter 4. Speaking of well water metaphorically, in verse 14, Jesus makes the similar claim. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst again. Turn with me to John chapter 15. Here's one of my favorite chapters in John. Verse 1 of John chapter 15. I am the true vine, metaphoric language again, and my father is the vine dresser. Look down at verse 4. Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit, <coughs> excuse me, of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. <coughs> I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. That's even easier to understand. The branch is absolutely dependent on the vine for nourishment. It can't survive without it. If it's cut off or detaches from the vine, the branch will die. Now look at verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Jesus claims to be the nourishment, source of nourishment, for our spiritual life. Look back at verse 27 in John chapter 6. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. Next phrase, which the Son of Man will give to you. Jesus claimed to be the bread of life. And then he confronts the crowd in verse 36. Eugene Peterson offers the following interpretive translation. 
I have told you this explicitly because even though you have seen me in action, you don't really believe me. Again, unbelief is stubborn. Worse than that, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 informs us that unbelievers are dead in their trespasses and sins. And I think we can all agree, dead people can't do anything for themselves. They are dead. Unbelievers are stuck in a casket of unbelief And it's like they're being buried alive and they can do nothing about it. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14 reads, But a natural man does not accept the things of God, things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Jesus confronts them and us with this spiritual reality. But then he moves quickly on to to state his personal commitment. Did you notice that Jesus is as dependent on the Father's involvement in the salvation of other people as you and I are? Jesus may be the, the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him, But no one comes to the Father through Jesus except, look down at verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Remember, verse 29, it's a work of God. From beginning to end, dead men and women cannot come anywhere. This concept, I tell you, and I know, it can prove to be really difficult for some people to to accept. But it is clearly taught in the scriptures. It just, it is undeniable. Hear the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, that's God, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And and these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Further, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, we read, We have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. Years and years ago, I heard an illustration that really helped me come to grips with this spiritual reality. And I admit, it's a difficult one. But in the illustration, in our salvation, we are approaching a door. And on the door hangs this sign. And the sign reads, Whosoever will. And we have a choice to make. See that? Whosoever will means anybody on the planet is invited to open the door 
and cross the threshold. And when we do that, some will do that. They'll open the door and cross. And as soon as you cross the threshold, you look behind you, and there's a sign hanging on the back of that door. And the sign reads, Chosen in Eternity Past. None of us deserve eternal life. Not one of us. We all deserve to remain dead in our trespasses and sin. But God, in his grace, has chosen some. And folks, I can't for the life of me figure out why he chose me. But I will be eternally thankful. Verse 41 is a clarification. Or sorry, verse 40. And it's a clarification by restatement. You see, Jesus repeats what he's already said. He could not underline it or highlight it or print it in bold. So he just repeats himself for emphasis. For it is my Father's will that all who see his Son and believe in him should have eternal life. I will raise them up at the last day. Discovering eternal life through a bread of life metaphor requires a, a dose of spiritual reality. And I use that term dose intentionally because for some it will be like that spoonful of cod liver oil we used to take as kids. How you and I might see things, are you know, it's really not relevant. We need to accept reality as defined by Jesus and as disclosed in the scriptures. Now, there may be some sitting here this morning that are wondering, well, did God choose me? It's a good question. It's a question I can't answer. No one can. But what I can tell you is that the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And Ephesians chapter 2 not only declares unbelievers to be dead in their trespasses and sins it continues in verse 4 there's a but God and he goes on to describe the work of God you might want to turn there Ephesians chapter 2 beginning at verse 4 but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By his grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, 
so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for beforehand so that we would walk in them. If you're sitting here this morning, and something you've heard has made you wonder, am I truly a follower of Christ? I would encourage you to spend some time reading, rereading, thinking, rethinking, and meditating on 1 John chapter 5, verse 11, 12, and 13. And this is the record that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you, and here's this important, that you may know, beyond a reasonable doubt, that you may know that you have eternal life. He wants us to know. He wants us to be assured of that. And if you are not sure, then I would encourage you to start believing, trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Apart from anything you might contribute to that, it's not important. It's believing in Jesus Christ. Believing that he was who he said he was, did what he said he did, and will do what he promised he will do. Believe that with all of your heart. And finally, you may be sitting here this morning thinking, well, I'm in. I'm trusting Jesus Christ. I've heard all this before. Wait a minute. Before you dismiss all this is no longer applicable to your life, let me remind you that eternal life is not a destination alone. It is both a quality of life and a quantity of life. It begins now and stretches all the way out into eternity. But our sanctification process is part and parcel of eternal life. You may have settled your eternal destiny, but you're still working out your salvation as God works in you. And that, my friends, requires these same shifts. Because eternal life is both present and future, and to experience life as God intends it to be lived today requires you and I to consider eternal life. Make room for that. Just don't get caught up in the things that are seen, the temporal things. You do that, the Word of God gets choked out of your life, and your spiritual life begins to shrivel, and you will remain a spiritual dwarf for the rest of your life. Consider eternal things. You need to believe in the work of God, what He has done, 
is doing and will do in and through your life. And then develop a God-centered worldview. Begin to see God in all the affairs of life. And finally, seek to grasp spiritual realities. Continue to spend time in your God's Word. Begin to see life, the, the unseen. Begin to understand them more and more every day. Father, thank you for this record, the life and ministry of Jesus. What a privilege to be able to sit and listen, to read, to study, to reflect on the one who has been identified as the author and perfecter of our faith. As we do that week after week, our prayer is that you will exercise this, this transformational activity in our lives, that our minds would be renewed, that our thoughts would be increasingly aligned with your thoughts, our actions, our reactions, our, our words and our deeds, more and more a reflection how Jesus might respond if he were facing these circumstances that we find ourselves in. Thank you for his example and for the spirit that lives within us, enabling us to follow in his steps. May that become increasingly our desire and then our testimony. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.